Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this week's episode, we're talking about one of the most powerful and famous figures in South American history, Simón José Antonio de la Santísima Trinidad Bolívar Palacios Ponte y Blanco, more commonly just known as Simón Bolívar. Bolivar is essentially the key figure of the early 19th century who broke the Spanish Empire's hold on its colonies in southern Latin America. For that grand honor, he is known as El Libertador, the Liberator. He is basically the antithesis of many of the great political and military figures who were alive before his birth. Those were either kings who set about conquering more land for their kingdom or empire, or men who came from nothing who eventually fought so hard against the system that they eventually became the system themselves. Bolivar, without saying too much at the top of the episode, is a man who came from privilege but threw all of that aside to do what he considered to be the correct choice in the face of a great power that could have given him an easy life. And hey, he's also the figure who a couple countries in South America are named after, so he's got that going for him even in modern times. So without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to the final days of the Spanish Empire and South America of the 19th century in Libertad, Justicia y Bolivar. In the background history lesson for this episode, we're going to talk about Spain's history in South America slash America in general. Obviously, this goes all the way back to the year 1492 when a fool by the name of Cristoforo Colombo, aka Cristobal Colón, aka aka Christopher Columbus, was able to receive a charter from the royals of Spain to sail west in order to reach Eastern Asia, instead of taking the long route around Africa or going by land. He erroneously thought he'd reached India, but instead reached an island in the Bahamas known to the locals as Guanahani, but which Columbus decided to call San Salvador. He then sailed around and explored Cuba and Hispaniola, the island containing the countries Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Columbus then returned to Spain with the locals he had enslaved and claimed he had found that special western route to Asia, specifically the East Indies which is why the native populations of the Americas were called Indians. Well, as we know now and the people then soon found out, Columbus had not in fact made it to Asia but was blocked by the huge landmass that stood in the way, aka the Americas. There was some tension at this time between the kingdoms of Spain, yes, Spain was multiple kingdoms and not just a singular country, and the kingdom of Portugal because both nations were really keen on seeing who could get to Asia by sea first. Spoiler alert, it was actually Portugal. Anyway, with knowledge of a new massive landmass to explore, Spain set out to claim it was their right to own the land. Portugal and Spain then signed a treaty that basically ruled that Spain had maritime control of the Northern Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, while Portugal had the Southern Atlantic and the Indian Ocean. Check out episode 26 for more information about that. Also, you may be thinking, hey, the Pacific Ocean is really big, that seems like an unfair trade for Portugal. Uh, yeah, they didn't know how big the Pacific Ocean was at that time. 
Spain was also given a leg up in the game via the help of the current Pope, Alexander VI, who I've previously covered way back in this show. Since Alexander VI was from Spain, he was willing to basically sign a papal order decreeing the Americas for Spain, including possibly agreeing to a stipulation that allowed Spain to enslave the locals as long as they converted them to Catholicism, which... yikes. More horrible things continued to happen as Spanish explorers learned that some of the local tribes had access to massive amounts of gold. This spurred on dreams of finding El Dorado, a mythical city made of gold. By the way, the concept of El Dorado was completely made up by the Spanish. No local tribes ever actually told them there was really a city of gold. It was all thought up after they found a tribe in modern-day Colombia called the Muisca who had a ritual where their king would cover himself in gold powder. Look up the Muisca and the whole deal surrounding Lake Guadavita for that really interesting story. Anyway, the quest for gold and the alleged desire to spread the good word of Jesus Christ eventually found Spain controlling most, but not all, of South and Central America. This resulted in the annihilation of the Aztec Empire, the conquest of the Mayan people, and subjugation of the Incan Empire. Many other native nations were also enslaved or outright destroyed by Spain's colonization efforts. Starting in the late 1530s, Spain conquered areas in modern-day Colombia and Venezuela, creating the Kingdom of New Granada. A couple centuries later, due to a bunch of political issues going on with other Spanish provinces in South America, it was renamed to the Vice Royalty of New Granada, with its capital being the city of Bogota. This Vice Royalty will be important later, so remember it. Now, obviously, the more land a nation controls, the harder it is to exert control over every single part of that territory. Spain controlled a lot of land. Throughout the 18th century and into the early 19th century, it became very apparent that the Spanish colonies in South America were getting harder and harder to control. It didn't help that new ideas of liberal government and revolution were flying around, especially thanks to the success of the American and French revolutions. So it seemed as if it was only a matter of time before Spain also got a slap in its face by its overseas territories. However, I don't think they realized just how powerful that slap would really be. And especially not that it would mostly come from just one man. Simon Bolivar was born in 1783 in the newly formed Captaincy General of Venezuela, because more political issues had caused New Granada to fall apart. He was born in Caracas, which, like the present day, was the capital of the Captaincy of Venezuela. His parents were actually very wealthy. He was of Spanish descent, which also gave Bolivar's family greater privilege in the Spanish colony, not that being rich already didn't do that. Also, fun fact, the first member of his father's family to emigrate to the region from Spain was named Simón de Bolivar. When Simon was only two years old, his father passed away from tuberculosis. For some reason, his legal guardians were now his mother and maternal grandfather. Like, obviously understand his mom, but why is his grandfather now there? 
Maybe it's some sort of Spanish culture I don't understand. Well, it may be some oldie time legal thing, in this particular case it was because his maternal grandfather was hoping to gain the inheritance of the Boulevard children. In order to secure his control over the children, Simon's grandfather had Simon, his two older sisters, and older brother all raised in separate households, marrying off Simon's older sisters as soon as possible. Simon was raised by one of his family's slaves who essentially acted as the sole parental figure in his life. This became even more the status quo when Simon's mother passed away just before his ninth birthday. A year later, Simon's grandfather died and young Bolivar was put in the care of his uncle, Carlos Palacios y Blanco. Simon loathed his uncle as it was very apparent that his mother's brother was only doing this for the Bolivar inheritance. Also, I'm now only realizing that Bolivar sounds vaguely like Baudelaire, the last name of the children from a series of unfortunate events who essentially go through the same horrible situation. Simon's uncle enrolled him at a school where he was taught by a man named Simon Rodriguez. Rodriguez was a staunch supporter of the independence movement for Venezuela to secede from the Spanish Empire. Bolivar was taught by Rodriguez and several other Venezuelan intellectuals until Rodriguez was forced to flee Venezuela in 1797 due to that involvement with the independence movement. From there, Bolivar was enrolled in the local militia. Enrolled in the militia at the age of 14. Well, after a year in the militia, Bolivar was a commissioned officer. In 1799, Bolivar's uncle decided to send the teenager across the ocean to Madrid so he could live with his other uncle, Esteban, who happened to be close with a friend of the Queen of Spain. Not too long after Simon arrived in Spain, Esteban's friend fell out of favor with the Queen and Bolivar's uncle was for some reason arrested for being pals with the guy. Bolivar was also denied the ability to return to the royal court because apparently he was wearing diamonds without the approval of the royals, which... God, if there is anything close to a first world problem, it is that. So far, Bolivar has only been in Spain for about a year and he has already done a speedrun of friends to enemies with the royals. It was also around this time in 1800 when Simon met Maria Teresa Rodriguez del Toro y Alesa, another Spanish-descended noble from Venezuela. The pair immediately hit it off and finally got married in 1802 after a series of moves from both parties that had split them apart. In the summer of 1802, Simon and Maria Teresa were finally starting to make their way back to Caracas. However, in a horrible twist of fate, Maria Teresa almost immediately contracted yellow fever. Her condition continued to get worse until she died in January of the next year. Bolivar promised himself he would never remarry, something he would even go on to tell his fellow revolutionaries later in life. And he maintained that promise, though he had other lovers throughout his life. With nothing for him in Venezuela, Simon once again returned to Spain. However, there was a bread shortage and any non-citizens of the nation were forced to leave. So Simon and a distant in-law of his buddied up and moved to Paris, just in time to be there for Napoleon Bonaparte to be crowned Emperor of France. 
Bolivar had always looked up to Napoleon, very briefly before this time, as a man who represented a breaking away from the old traditions of the monarchy. But now he was disillusioned with the freedom fighter becoming a monarch himself. It's said that he closed the doors to his apartment window during the coronation as an act of protest. While in Paris, Bolivar once again met up with his old teacher, Simon Rodriguez. The pair often spent time with other intellectuals in Paris where they discussed modern liberal theory and ideas of an independence movement in South America. Bolivar became radicalized during this time and began warming up to the ideas of becoming a revolutionary. But before he could do that, he quickly went on a trip to Italy where he once more arrived in time to see Napoleon become King of Italy. Bolivar had become further disillusioned with the Emperor, seeing an icon of the French Revolution now acting as the very tyrant he had fought to put down. In August of 1805, Bolivar and Rodriguez arrived in Rome. At some point, the pair were either on the Monsacre or the Aventine Hill. Both of these locations were heavily featured in the First Secession of the Plebeians, an important event in the 5th century BCE where the Plebeians of Rome revolted against the patrician class, mainly the Senate. This revolt ended with the Plebeians receiving more power in the government. Standing in the long shadows of this historical event, Simon Bolivar made a vow that would last him the rest of his life. In his own words, I swear before you that I will not rest body or soul until I have broken the chains binding us to the will of Spanish might. He promised at that moment to end the Spanish Empire. The next year, Simon set out to return to Venezuela via the United States. He was now on a mission to find other like-minded people in Venezuela who were looking to shake things up. Weirdly though, he was specifically looking for people of Spanish descent, because I guess he still wasn't radical enough. During this time and over the next couple years, Venezuela began going through a series of changes, though nothing that would get to the level we'll see later when Bolivar actually gets his revolution machine whirring. But first we have to briefly go back to Spain. In 1808, Emperor Napoleon had conquered Spain and had his brother Joseph Bonaparte seated as the new king. Obviously, this means that the Spanish Empire is now under Napoleon's control. The upper class in Spain was kinda fine with this, but everyone else, the middle and lower class of Spain and almost everyone else under the nation's control, were very much not into Napoleonic rule. Unfortunately for those in Venezuela looking for independence, the main topic of revolution at this time in the imperial province was looking to restore the rule of King Fernando VII, who ironically had looked to Napoleon to get him on the throne before being forced to abdicate just a few months later. A group of Fernando supporters approached the governor of Venezuela at this time with the argument that Venezuela should have its own government and secede from the empire. This group was arrested. Luckily, Bolivar wasn't part of this group. However, he was a known radical revolutionary, so he was put on a government watch list. In April of 1810, a new government party was instituted in Venezuela, this group still under the command of the Bonapartes. 
Well, after only two days, the Spanish population of Venezuela pulled a coup and established the Supreme Junta of Caracas, a more democratic government who now had military control over the province. Unfortunately for people like Bolivar, this group still maintained loyalty to Fernando VII. Bolivar had not been in Caracas for the coup but quickly returned, this time joined by his brother Juan Vicente, and sought any chance he could get to join this new government. Now, technically, the installment of the Supreme Junta was the beginning of the Venezuelan War of Independence, but we'll get more into the actual war in just a bit. Bolivar was selected to join a group of delegates that were headed to the UK in order to seek help in their goal of independence. The group was specifically told not to meet with a man named Francisco de Miranda. De Miranda was a radical Venezuelan revolutionary. He had fought in the American Revolution and the French Revolution. And he had led a failed revolution against the government of Venezuela before the Supreme Junta was even formed. Well, obviously, the group decided they would meet with De Miranda, and Bolivar invited him to return to Venezuela to fight for the blossoming republic's independence. During this time, the Supreme Junta began holding elections for a new congress. With a handful of other more liberal government reforms, the Junta managed to isolate Caracas from the rest of Venezuela, who supported the old Napoleonic government. With Bolivar's help, De Miranda was able to be elected to the new Congress. And on the 5th of July, 1811, the Congress officially declared Venezuela's independence from Spain, thus forming the first Venezuelan Republic. However, the new nation now had to get its act together to fight in the ongoing war. <laughs> From the very beginning, the tides seemed to be against the first Venezuelan Republic. Several other provinces within the Captaincy General of Venezuela were outright against the formation of the Supreme Junta. Efforts to bring several other regions under the control of the Caracas Junta proved to be a disaster. On top of that, De Miranda, who had been propped up as a leader for the Civil War, was proving to be a terrible leader and a volatile personality. He even ended up stripping Bolivar of military ranks due to the latter being friends with a rival military leader. Nonetheless, Bolivar would go on to receive acclaim for helping lead the Republic to victory in its fight against the Venezuelan city of Valencia. On top of all this, the Royalist forces against the Republic were being supplied weapons by Spain, who also had a naval blockade to prevent the Junta from receiving weapons from allies like America and the UK. Then, in March of 1812, a massive earthquake struck the region, essentially leveling the city of Caracas. Bolivar helped in the aftermath to rescue survivors and bury the dead. However, it would be De Miranda who rose up to try to bring the Republic back to order. He would do this by declaring himself dictator. Unfortunately, he did not do much to inspire hope for the Republic, which was quickly realizing that it was possibly almost over before it had truly gotten the chance to begin. The Royalists in Venezuela started saying that the earthquake was divine punishment from God, a sign that the Republic should never have existed. De Miranda did not do a good enough job in suppressing that sort of thinking. 
Bolivar then suffered a defeat when trying to take a castle in the city of Puerto Cabello. He briefly retired from military service and returned to his home. De Miranda, after more defeats, decided he would call for an armistice between the Republic and the Royalists. This quickly got Bolivar back into gear and he and several other staunch anti-monarchists arrested De Miranda on grounds of treason. Bolivar and the others handed the former dictator over to the Spanish royalists as a prisoner and De Miranda was shipped off to spend the rest of his life in a Spanish prison. Unfortunately, this was the final straw for the First Venezuelan Republic. With De Miranda's imprisonment, royalist forces were free to move in to reclaim the area around Caracas. Bolivar hid away, fearing that the royalists would come for him next. However, with the aid of a family friend who was close with the leader of the royalist army, Bolivar was given the freedom to leave Venezuela without a pair of handcuffs on his wrists. He fled to the Dutch colony of Curaçao. From there, Bolivar was invited to the United Provinces of New Granada, a nation that contained parts of modern-day Colombia, Venezuela, Panama, and Ecuador. Bolivar accepted the invitation and immediately dove back into the world of revolution. He may have no longer been in his homeland, but Simon Bolivar was still ready to keep the promise he had made to himself. He would see South America free. Alright, we're a decent chunk of the way into this episode, yet Bolivar isn't a leader or a liberator, so let's get the ball rolling on that front. In December of 1812, Bolivar was given leadership of a military unit in New Granada. In the early days of his leadership, he wrote the Cartagena Manifesto, named after the city he briefly lived in when first arriving in New Granada. This manifesto was essentially Bolivar saying, here's what went wrong and here's what I would do if I had a second chance, insofar as Venezuelan independence. Bolivar was stationed on the Magdalena River in New Granada, the largest river in modern-day Colombia. He proved his worth early on by engaging in the Magdalena campaign in early 1813. This military campaign saw Bolivar removing royalist influence from the river and giving control of it to the anti-monarchist New Granada. Leveraging this victory, Bolivar requested permission to raise an army that would allow him to retake Venezuela. Though it took him a few months to get the permission, Bolivar was soon all set to begin his newest ambition, a sweeping conquest of Venezuela in what is now known as the Admirable Campaign. By mid-1813, Bolivar was marching on Venezuela with his army from New Granada. He issued a decree of war to the death. If you were a native Spanish person in South America and you didn't agree to rise up to unshackle yourself from the monarchies across the Atlantic, Bolivar's army would come for your head. A bit much, yeah, but it showed just how ferociously passionate he was in his efforts to see his promise through. Now, it should also be mentioned that Bolivar's efforts in the Admirable Campaign were made much easier due in part to a completely separate independence campaign being launched from the opposite side of Venezuela by a revolutionary named Santiago Mariño. In August, Bolivar entered Caracas and took the city, driving out the royalist forces in control. 
On the 14th of October, Bolivar was hailed as El Libertador by the people of the capital city. By January of the next year, Bolivar had officially reinstated the Republic of Venezuela, this time with himself seated in power as its dictator. Unfortunately, he only ruled over the western areas of free Venezuela. Mourinho ruled over the east. The pair didn't necessarily get along super well, but were willing to cooperate. However, there were still several areas in Venezuela under royalist control. But even then, there were Venezuelans outside of royalist control who were not fond of Bolivar and Mourinho calling the shots. Mostly made up of people of color and those living out on farms in the countryside, a counter-revolutionary faction led by a man named José Tomás Boves reared its head against the Republic. Boves led a horrific military campaign that would see the Second Republic shaken and eventually fall apart. When Bolivar and Mourinho abandoned Caracas in order to save their own heads as well as those of their republic, the pair were branded as traitors to the nation. By the end of 1814, Bolivar found himself in exile once again as he headed back to New Granada. There, he was given command of another army in order to take down their rival nation, the free and independent state of Cundamarca. Though Bolivar was successful in this campaign, he accidentally allowed royalist forces to retake the Magdalena River. Embarrassed at this failure, in May of 1815, Bolivar placed himself in self-imposed exile, sailing off to Jamaica to atone for his loss. A couple background things before we move forward with Simon Bolivar. First, in 1813, Napoleon finally allowed Fernando VII to reclaim the throne of Spain. Spain used this new, full Spanish rule to really crack down on South American uprisings, hence battles Bolivar had to refight in New Granada in the royalists' successful recapture of the region. Second, throughout the 1790s and the early 1800s, during the same time as the French Revolution, the slaves of Haiti revolted leading to the only successful slave-led uprising in emancipation known to history. Simon, at this part, was in Kingston, Jamaica. He continued asking for aid from other nations, especially Britain, and wrote about revolutionary ideology. His most famous piece of writing from this time was in September of 1815, in which Bolivar wrote what was originally meant to be a letter just to a British merchant, the Jamaica Letter. This was a stunning piece of revolutionary work that once again pointed out the successes and failures of Bolivar's past with the South American Revolution. The key point of the Jamaica letter, though, is one of the final thoughts Bolivar makes in it. He suggests that South American independence could never actually be brought to fruition unless all the individual nations join together as one under the rule of a strong dictator. Gee, and I wonder who Bolivar had in mind for that position. Shortly after the Jamaica letter was published, Bolivar was forced to flee Jamaica after a failed assassination attempt. From there, he was invited to travel to Haiti, where several of his former revolutionary friends had decided to hide out. In Haiti, Simon was introduced to Alexandra Pétion, the first president of the Republic of Haiti. Petion was impressed with Bolivar and offered him money and supplies to see his dreams of a free South America come true. There was just one caveat. 
Bolivar had to free all of the slaves he owned. This made sense considering Petion was the president of a nation of free slaves. Also, yeah, Bolivar was totally a slave owner. It should be mentioned that his ideas for revolution really only applied to people of Spanish descent and not the native populations or slaves owned by the Spanish. But yeah, Bolivar then freed all of the slaves he had owned, and Petion gave him the military power he needed. Technically, Bolivar was also supposed to free all of the slaves in South America. This he did not end up doing. In 1816, Bolivar again launched a campaign to free Venezuela. After a rough bout of back and forths, Bolivar gained enough of a foothold to declare a third republic in 1817, again with Simon as its leader. Unfortunately, the war for independence remained a rocky one. In July of 1817, Bolivar captured the city of Angostura, which yes is where Angostura bitters were created just a few years after its capture actually, and this city became the Third Republic's capital. After two more fraught years of conflict, the war seemed to be going well enough in the Republic's favor that the new Congress, convened by Bolivar, made a massive proclamation. Venezuela and New Granada would join together to form a new free nation that was historically known as the Republic of Colombia, but is more commonly called Gran Colombia. And obviously, Bolivar would be president of this new nation. He had done it. After so many years, Bolivar had freed Venezuela from Spanish rule. And yet, there was still much more work that needed to be done. Technically, Venezuela wouldn't be fully free from Spanish control until 1823 when the army defeated Spain at the Battle of Lake Maracaibo. But for all intents and purposes, the formation of Gran Colombia marked a significant shift in the breakup of the Spanish Empire's holdings in South America. In the meantime, El Libertador was still on a mission. By the end of 1820, he had mostly finished up his military work in former Venezuela and New Granada. He now shifted his attention to royalist-occupied land in modern-day Ecuador and Peru. In a pleasant surprise, in late 1821, Panama declared its independence from Spain and requested to join Gran Colombia. Now, around this same time, there was a man named José de San Martín y Matores, who was essentially Bolivar's counterpart in the southern half of South America. He had helped in the wars for independence of Chile and his homeland of Argentina. His goal was to move further north in order to liberate the land of modern-day Peru. It seemed that after he helped free most of Peru from royalist control, San Martín was looking to absorb the land of Ecuador into his protectorate. Word of this reached Bolivar and Gran Colombia, who were very keen on seeing Ecuador brought into their nation. In July of 1822, Bolivar and San Martin met in the city of Guayaquil in Ecuador. The pair held a conference to discuss the path forward for both men and their respective liberation campaigns. Unfortunately, we have absolutely no idea what was said at this conference. There were no witnesses and no records held. All we know is that after the Guayaquil conference, San Martin dropped out of his role as protector of Peru and went into self-imposed exile. 
As for Bolivar, he just kept the train rolling and continued his annexation of Ecuador for Gran Colombia. In 1823, forces in Peru reached out to Bolivar asking him to take control of their nation. After congressional approval, Bolivar continued south. In February of 1824, he took control of Peru as its new dictator. Then a couple strange things happened. Gran Colombia made to strip Bolivar of his political and military power. Many of his longtime allies were beginning to grow a bit apprehensive towards his massive control of South American politics and warfare. Though initially mad, Bolivar accepted this course of action. But then in early 1825 he attempted to step down from all political positions and Congress refused his dismissal. So we don't want Bolivar to be too powerful, but you still want him in power? Uh, okay, sure. Then, later that year, a region that was then part of northern Peru sent word to Bolivar that they wanted to be their own nation and they were naming themselves after him. This was the birth of the nation of Bolivia. Bolivar then helped the Bolivians write up their first constitution. Of course, he would also be their first president. But this would essentially be Bolivar's last hurrah, because after that, everything began to fall apart. Bolivar's one-time allies continued to grow weary of his growing power. Two factions began growing in Gran Colombia. The first wished to expand upon Bolivar's powers, wishing to see El Libertador become dictator for life. Not that he already wasn't. The other faction favored a less centralized power, with many people actually wishing to see Gran Colombia broken up into the individual nations it had once been. After all, they were free from Spanish control. They no longer needed Bolivar to lead them. This all culminated when, in 1813, a man named Jose Antonio Paez, one of Bolivar's former war buddies, announced Venezuela was declaring independence from Gran Colombia. As part of its independence, Paez also announced that if the dictator El Libertador was ever to set foot in an independent Venezuela, he would be arrested. After all his hard work, after years of fighting to see his homeland free from Spain, Simón Bolívar was denied the ability to see his nation truly be free. Over the next year in 1831, the Federalist side of the Gran Colombia argument got its wish, and the nation was dissolved into individual parts. And you may be wondering how Bolivar felt about all of this. Well, things had very much not been easy for him since the tide began to turn against El Libertador. In 1828, there was a failed assassination attempt against him. Soon later, Bolivar's health began to fail. He died of tuberculosis in December of 1830. Perhaps part of him actually knew what was coming, but when Bolivar died, most of Gran Colombia was still intact. He would never see the nation he helped build fully dissolve. He was originally interred in Colombia until Paez ordered for his body to be returned to Caracas in 1842. There are some weird rumors surrounding Bolivar's death and post-mortem experience. The first is that there are legends that his heart was removed during his autopsy and it still remains in Colombia. 
Rumors also spread that Bolivar had actually been poisoned by Gran Colombian secessionists. This rumor persisted for so long that, in 2008, Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez had Bolivar's body exhumed in order to test that theory. But the results were inconclusive. El Libertador's life was a hard one for sure. It was driven by a promise he made for himself. And despite everything, he had seen that promise come through, at least for the nation of Gran Colombia. However, it's ironic that his journey began not long after recognizing that his once hero, Napoleon Bonaparte, had gone from revolutionary hero to dictator, and Bolivar's own life would see him go on the exact same path. Also, because there wasn't anywhere else to really put this, I'll add that the full name of Venezuela is actually the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela. Even if he was denied his homeland at the end of his life, at least it will forever acknowledge he was a major part of it. But that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, it's back to Rome to dive into the life of Emperor Claudius, someone who is seemingly a breath of fresh air for Rome after the turbulent era of Emperors Tiberius and Caligula. Also, as this is the last episode coming out in the year 2023, I want to thank everyone who has listened to the podcast throughout the year. I hope you will continue to listen next year in 2024. And I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. (laughs) 